Hello, and welcome to the Herodotus Podcast. This is Episode 6, A Fool and His Money, Book 1, Chapters 26 through 35. Last episode, we examined the exploits of the Mermnad kings, the ancestors of Croesus, as they expanded the kingdom of Lydia and fended off Cimmerian invaders. We also encountered the first of Herodotus's many digressions, the story of Arian and the dolphin. In this episode, we'll finally be meeting Croesus, hear about his remarkable victories, and witness his debate with the sage Solon of Athens over a question that we still ask today. Can money buy happiness? We'll also be taking a closer look at Lydia and the influence the kingdom exerted over the Greek world. Before we delve into the narrative, I'd like to zoom out for a moment and look at the larger timeline. It can be difficult to get a handle on exactly when events happen in the histories for several reasons. Herodotus does not, of course, rely on a modern dating system. And compounding the difficulty, he does not always get the sequence or even the exact number of events right. As we saw last time, with his erasure of the Cimmerian invasion of Lydia, in which Gyges was killed. Looking back over the reigns of the Mermnad kings, recent estimates have Gyges on the throne from approximately 680 to 644, Ardis from 644 to 615, Satyates from 615 to 610, and Aliates from 610 to 560, when Croesus ascends to the kingship of Lydia. So, we find ourselves in the year 560. For some context, that's 60 years before the start of the Greco-Persian Wars. And although we have just sped through over a century in a matter of some 10 chapters, it's going to take much, much longer for the main narrative to fully traverse the distance from 560 to 500. Croesus, a new king at the age of 35, achieved a string of military victories. In short order, he subdued the Greeks in Ionia and Aeolia, a region in the northwest corner of Asia Minor. Herodotus adds a remark that hints at the unscrupulous nature of Croesus's might. He made stronger accusations as a cause for war against cities when he could, but he used flimsy pretexts as well. Croesus, in other words, had a desire to dominate western Anatolia, and dominate he did. Herodotus records a compendious list of the peoples over whom Croesus ruled. The Lydians, the Phrygians, the Mysians, the Mariandinians, the Calabes, the Paphlagonians, the Thymians, the Bithynians, the Carians, the Ionians, the Dorians, the Aeolians, and the Pamphylians. Whew! The only groups in the western half of Anatolia that Croesus did not dominate were the Cilicians and the Lycians, who lived on the south coast. The rest of the entire half of the peninsula was his. Lydia was, at this point, large, powerful, and, as you might imagine with all these subjugated peoples paying tribute to Sardis, extremely rich. With the mainland under his control, Croesus decided to attack the Greeks living on the islands off the coast of Anatolia. These would be Samos, Lesbos, and Chios, among others, large islands which were inhabited by sizable communities of Greeks. To this end, 
Croesus undertook preparations for the construction of a fleet. This was a big step for Lydia, which heretofore had been an exclusively land-based military power. Then one day, Croesus received a visitor. It was either, Herodotus notes, Bias of Priene or Pittacus of Mytilene. The historian says the story is told about both men, and the two were, in many respects, similar. Both were Greeks, both were renowned for their wisdom, and both lived on or just off the western coast. Whoever this visitor was, Croesus asked him how the island-dwelling Greeks were faring, and received a striking answer. King, the islanders are buying a thousand horses with the intention of attacking Sardis. This news delighted Croesus. After all, the islanders had no experience of cavalry warfare. The king gleefully cried, May the gods inspire them to ride into battle against the forces of Lydia. But the visitor calmly responded, King, your desire to do battle against the islanders on land is a reasonable one. But what do you suppose the islanders are praying for, now that they've heard you're building ships to attack them with, other than to do battle against the Lydians on the sea, and so to avenge their fellow Greeks whom you've conquered? Croesus took the hint. He put an end to his shipbuilding program and instead established friendly relations with the island-dwelling Greeks. This wise visitor, whether it was Bias or Pittacus, was not the only traveler heading to Sardis at this time. As the capital of a powerful and wealthy state, the city attracted many visitors, one of whom was particularly notable, the great Solon of Athens. But he wasn't there just to sightsee. Solon had been an archon, a government official, at Athens, and had completely overhauled the laws of the city in order to put an end to the civil strife that had been simmering there. His radical changes included a unique stipulation. After his reforms were enacted, he was to leave the city and stay away for ten years, during which time his laws couldn't be altered. We'll discuss this further after the conclusion of the narrative. During this decade-long leave of absence, Solon traveled throughout the Mediterranean and eventually found his way to Sardis. His great reputation for wisdom preceded him, and Croesus welcomed him warmly to the palace. The king made an enthusiastic show of his great and glorious wealth to the Athenian. Afterward, Croesus was eager to ask Solon some questions, and I'll let Herodotus himself continue the story. My dear Athenian guest, said Croesus, we have heard many stories of your wisdom and your wanderings, how you've made your way across the world to seek knowledge. So, I must ask you, have you ever seen anyone so fortunate as myself? This Croesus asked, supposing himself to be the most fortunate person of all mankind. Solon, uninterested in flattering him, declared simply, Yes, king, Tellus of Athens. Croesus asked sharply, And how do you judge this Tellus to be so very fortunate? Solon replied, Tellus's city prospered, and he fathered brave and noble sons. He saw them have children of their own, all of whom survived. And after this life, prosperous as we Greeks would see it, came a most glorious death. In battle between the Athenians and their neighbors the Eleusinians, he came to the aid of his fellow soldiers and sent the enemy forces into retreat. 
dying most nobly. The Athenians buried him where he fell, at public expense, and honored him greatly. Croesus then asked who Solon considered to be the next most fortunate, thinking that he himself must surely be the runner-up in that regard. But the sage again disappointed him, when he replied, Cleobus and Biton. They were from Argos, and, in addition to both having sufficient means of living, they possessed incredible strength. They were both athletic champions, and this story is told about them. When there was a festival of Hera being held at Argos, their mother needed to be taken there in an ox-drawn cart to the goddess's temple. However, the oxen did not arrive from the fields in time, so the young men, in a great hurry, yoked themselves to the cart and pulled it with their mother on top. They hauled her for forty-five furlongs, that is, about five and a half miles, or nine kilometers, until they came to the temple. After they did this, their lives came to a most excellent end, and through them the gods showed humanity how death is better than life. The men of Argos, crowding around the two brothers, congratulated them on their strength, while the women of Argos did the same to their mother for having such outstanding sons. And so their mother, elated by what her sons had done and the praise they had garnered, stood before the statue of the goddess and prayed that they, who had done Hera such honor, be rewarded with the best thing a human could receive. After she prayed, her sons made a sacrifice and feasted. They then went to sleep in the temple itself and passed away, never to rise again. On account of their excellence, the Argives set up statues of them at Delphi. So Solon gave Cleobis and Biton second place in good fortune. But Croesus, galled by this, said, My dear Athenian guest, do you hold our prosperity in such contempt that you rank us alongside such plebeians? To this, Solon replied, Croesus, you ask me about human fortune. I know that the gods are jealous and prone to troubling us. Throughout the span of a human life, a person may see many things, may suffer many things, that they do not wish to. I fix the limit of a human life at 70 years. In those 70 years are 26,250 days. And among all of those days, there's not a single one that brings on the same thing as any other. And so, Croesus, all human affairs are chance. You seem to me to be exceedingly rich, but I can't answer what you keep asking me without learning whether you end your life well. A very rich person isn't more fortunate than someone who has just enough to live on, unless it chance that they end their life well, in possession of many wonderful things. For many fantastically wealthy people are unfortunate, and many people with little wealth are fortunate. Now, Someone who is wealthy but unfortunate has only two advantages over a fortunate person, but the fortunate person has many over the wealthy unfortunate. While the wealthy can more easily fulfill their desires and withstand calamity, the fortunate, though not as able to bear desire and disaster, are shielded from such things by their good fortune, and are, in addition, free from injury and illness, unafflicted by evils, with a prosperous family and a healthy appearance. So, if this sort of person, in addition to all these blessings, ends their life well, then they are who you're looking for, someone truly worthy of being called fortunate. 
Before their death, however, we must hold off and call them not fortunate, but lucky. Now, no human being can possess all these gifts at the same time, just as no country can be fully self-sufficient and produce every resource it needs. Each country has something that another lacks, and the best one is that which has the most. And so, too, no person is self-sufficient. Everyone lacks something that another person has. The person who passes through life with the most advantages and then passes away pleasantly is the one who, as I see it, King, should bear the title of fortunate. With everything, we must look to the end to see how it turns out. For the god holds out the promise of good fortune to many before utterly ruining them. Now, as you can imagine, this lengthy and carefully considered disquisition on the vagaries of human fortune did not please Croesus one bit. Instead, he dismissed Solon and thought that he, who was widely considered to be among the wisest of all human beings, was an absolute fool. With all his immense wealth and power, Croesus did not see how he couldn't be called fortunate. And it's there that we'll leave our narrative for this episode. Can you guess what will happen to our headstrong and supremely confident king next time? Now that Croesus's kingdom has reached the apogee of its power, and has come to dominate the Greeks of Anatolia, which is the ostensible reason for Croesus showing up in the histories in the first place, I want to give a little more information about Lydia. While the Lydian region has been inhabited since the Paleolithic period, archaeological evidence suggests that the Lydians themselves arrived there only around 1200 BCE. Their early history in the area is known mainly through myth and legend. For example, Herodotus records that the first dynasty of Lydian kings were all descended from a ruler named Lydus. This is almost definitely an invention of a much later date, as a way of explaining the name Lydia. The next dynasty that Herodotus records you'll remember, supposedly descended from Heracles, an assertion that doesn't inspire too much confidence as far as historical authenticity goes. The earliest Lydian kings who have left any evidence in the historical record are, in fact, the Myrmnads. As I mentioned in the previous two episodes, the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal recorded interactions with both Gyges and his son Artis. That said, it's possible that the names of the early Myrmnad kings may have been regnal titles, official names assumed upon kingship, as the Lydian form of the name Gyges, Kukas, may simply mean the old one, or the ancestor, and Artis, the son, or the descendant. Croesus, however, is a fully historical figure. His conquest of practically the entire western half of Anatolia the logical consequence of the Myrmnad policy of waging wars on nearby cities, meant the subjugation of numerous Greek-speaking communities. By the time of his conquests, there had been interaction between Lydia and the Greek populations on the Aegean coast of Asia Minor for centuries. Pottery at Sardis that dates back to the 10th century BCE displays clear influence of the Greek proto-geometric style of decoration. Increasing amounts of pottery from Ionia, as well as from Corinth on the Greek mainland, have been excavated at Sardis, pointing to a growing trans-Aegean trade in the centuries that followed. Unfortunately, 
the goods that Lydia would have exported in return, such as perfumes, textiles, and wooden furniture, don't stand the test of time like ceramics, and so leave no trace in the archaeological record. By subjugating the Ionian and Aeolian Greeks, Croesus forced closer cultural ties between them and the Lydians. And by uniting the western half of Anatolia under a single ruler, he established ideal conditions for flourishing trade. Archaeological evidence, both from Sardis and from graves in Lydian territory, shows a booming market for Greek luxury goods. Flowing in the other direction were both Lydian goods, Lydian pottery and gold votive objects have been found at numerous Ionian sites, and Lydian craftsmen, whose styles of jewelry, ceramics, and even architecture become much more common in the Greek cities of Anatolia at this time. At a sanctuary dedicated to Athena, in the Greek city of Smyrna, letters in the Lydian alphabet were engraved into columns, presumably as an identifiable mason's mark. Croesus himself helped fund a huge temple to Artemis at Ephesus. The king's name has been found on fragments of column bases there. The influence of Lydia was so pervasive that the local dialect of Greek picked up loanwords from the Lydian language. Wealth and power, therefore, served to bring the Anatolian Greek cities into the cultural, economic, and political spheres of Lydia. There's one crucial Lydian innovation that should be mentioned, and relates directly to the fabled wealth of Croesus. Even before his reign, when the Greeks thought about Lydia, one image loomed large in their minds. Gold. Much as with Gyges, as we discussed in episode 4, Lydia was closely tied to the idea of wealth in the Greek imagination. For example, the tragedian Aeschylus, in the Persians, written not long after the end of the Greco-Persian Wars, describes the capital of Lydia as gold-rich Sardis. And there was excellent reason for this. Sardis, which sat at the base of Mount Tmolus, was located on the river Pactolus. And the Pactolus, which ran down from the mountain, contained vast quantities of electrum, a naturally occurring alloy of gold and silver. With this electrum, the Lydians created coins, and in doing so, they created the first weighted metal currency, the basis for all future European conceptions of money. Although small amounts of gold or silver had been used for the purpose of commercial exchange for millennia, Lydian coinage seems to have been created out of necessity as a result of the particular geology of the region. The fact that the Pactolus was rich in electrum, not pure gold or silver, but rather an alloy of the two, was the critical factor. If, say, a merchant wanted to determine the value of some amount of electrum, it would have been necessary to test the purity of its gold content, which could vary significantly. With a larger ingot of electrum, that would have been no great difficulty, but trying to assess the purity of a bagful of tiny electrum pieces simply wouldn't have been feasible. The solution? A central authority, in this case the Lydian king, created pieces of electrum of uniform weight 
and stamp them with a symbol to attest to their authenticity. Voila! Coinage! The glittering wealth of the river Pactolus even found its way into myth. In the Roman poet Ovid's Metamorphoses, Midas, the ruler of the nearby kingdom of Phrygia, grew sick of his golden touch and was instructed to wash himself in the river to rid himself of the gift. As he washed the magic away, his body tinged the river water with gold. And not just the river. As Ovid writes, Even now, the nearby fields, touched by the source of this ancient vein, stiffen with gold, the moist soil gleaming pale. However, even by the time Ovid wrote these lines, the electrum in the river was dwindling, and by the end of the first century CE, the vein was exhausted. It's not difficult to see how a place so rich in precious metal that it literally invented coinage would be perceived as fabulously wealthy. Some scholars have argued that such wealth had another real-world consequence. Not only did it facilitate the booming trade that I mentioned earlier, but it may have proved helpful in the military campaigns undertaken by the Mermnad kings. Among the many things that gold can buy, mercenaries would probably have been high on the list of Lydian monarchs, and buying their services would have been an easy way to reinforce the military power of Sardis. After all, coins are a convenient, easily transportable medium of exchange, ideally suited to be distributed to soldiers and carried off by them as pay. To turn from wealth to wisdom, the chapters in this episode feature not one, but two wise men. Well, two and a half, if you count the uncertain identity of the one who warned Croesus about fighting naval battles against experienced sailors. However, far more focus is given to Solon, a figure who exists in myth as much as in history. To the Athenians, he was a nomothetes, a lawgiver, that is to say, a foundational figure for their democracy, even though he himself did not institute many truly democratic reforms. His laws laid the groundwork for future generations to create the democratic institutions that would be at the heart of Athenian government later on, during the Persian Wars and after. As such, he was mythologized in much the same way that some in the U.S. have glorified the Founding Fathers, and was similarly revered for his wisdom. During his archonship in the years 594 and 593, Solon created an entirely new code of laws, superseding the existing legal code in nearly every respect. The main thrust of his reforms was to create a middle ground between the demands of the wealthy and the needs of the poor. Before this, Athenian debtors who could not make their payments were forced into feudal-like relationships with their creditors and were compelled to give one-sixth of the crops they produced to their overlords. Those who could not meet this obligation were forced to sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off their debt. This resulted in, to put it mildly, a wholly untenable state of affairs, as the concentration of wealth and power in the hands of a few landowners pushed Athenian society to the brink of violent conflict. To reverse this trajectory, Solon initiated what came to be called a sesakthea, literally a shaking off of burdens. All debts were cancelled, and those who had been enslaved because of them were freed. Land was returned to those from whom it had been confiscated, and a property-sized ceiling was instituted, 
limiting how much land a single individual could own. Moreover, Solon created new citizen classes based on how much agricultural output a person's property produced. Political power was distributed among these classes, allowing the less wealthy, though not the poorest of the poor, to hold office. This was a marked change from the earlier Athenian constitution, under which political power was limited solely to the aristocracy. These new laws were inscribed on axones, large wooden cylinders mounted on axles, like a turntable, and displayed in public, so that they would be visible to all. And then there was Solon's ten-year sabbatical. Why would he write it into law that he had to keep away from Athens for ten years? It's been argued that the lawgiver's absence was a kind of safety mechanism. If he wasn't in the city, nobody could bribe or threaten him to undo his reforms. And furthermore, he himself wouldn't be tempted to alter them to his own benefit, perhaps to, say, declare himself king. Enforced absence was, in a sense, enforced selflessness. Solon's travels took him to many places before he found himself in Sardis. And judging by the account in the histories, it's hard to see Solon having a very good time there. The portrait of the Lydian king painted by Herodotus in today's chapters is not a flattering one. Croesus may be rich, but he is also naive and short-sighted, unable to see the bigger picture. Blinded by his own success, he does not see the folly of his own ambition until a wise man points it out to him. Notice, that's a pattern that occurs twice in today's chapters, first with Bias slash Pittacus, and then with Solon. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that Croesus will come to rue his scorning of Solon's advice, and will realize, before too long, the wisdom of his guest's viewpoint. Let's see what happens when the other shoe drops, next time on the Herodotus Podcast. Thank you.